I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God. Yes. Can I do this at every campus? Can I real quick get a hoo -ah? That video just fired uh, me up. We're starting uh, a new series for the next two weeks that we've uh, titled Take Your Ground, and it's going to have a little bit uh, like of a military feel. And I want to do this before we get started. I want to welcome everyone at all of our campuses, Littleton, Lakewood, uh, Golden, Arvada, a.k.a. the Vatican, uh, all of the men and women at our God Behind Bars campuses. Can we give it up for them real fast at all of our campuses? We love you guys. So honored that we get to worship with you week in and uh, week out. I want to say this. I've been uh, away from here for a little bit and had a nice little um, break. But man, when I'm gone from getting to preach to you guys out of God's word, I just, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And every time I get so grateful for this church and for this place. And so I just at all of our campuses, I want to just remind you how grateful I am to get to be one of your guys as pastors and how honored I am that I get to preach to you guys out of God's written and his holy word uh, so often often throughout the year. I do not take this lightly. I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for everything. I've just had a grateful party today. I'm grateful after watching that video several times this week. I'm grateful for the men and the women in our church that serve us in the armed forces. Can we do this? Can we give it up for all of them at all of our campuses? If you defend our liberty and you defend our right to the democratic process, I do not take that lightly. I get to very uncourageously rant behind a computer on Facebook about my opinions politically because you're somewhere out there going like this, defending my right to do that, okay? Now, I just wanna say thank you for that. Now, I also am grateful for, for this, and this pains me to say, but it's just true, so I gotta say it. I'm grateful for Sean. Didn't he do an awesome job with this last series? I got such incredible 
feedback from so many people. I wasn't here every week. I was out of town speaking a, a weekend or two, but I got such awesome feedback about what an amazing series this was and how much uh, faith was built in this series we did called Blind Faith. But I got to have an honest moment with you, just, just in, in, in honor of full disclosure. I actually, for a week, lost my faith because of this series. And I'll tell you why. I was teetering on the edge of atheism for the first time in my 18-year walk with Christ. And here's why. Sean and I, over Christmas, we're taking the boys hunting. And so we're heading up east, uh, eastern Colorado. And I'm just starting to make small talk. And so I'm saying, hey, Sean, you getting fired up for this, you know, blind face series? And, you know, how's your studying going? He's like, yeah, good. I can't wait. It's going to be fun. And I'm like, how have the questions been? What are people asking? He goes, you know, kind of what you expect. You know, how can we trust the Bible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I go, have you gotten any of the weird questions? that we always get when we do these, you know, ask question series. And he's like, oh yeah. He goes, I got one yesterday. He goes, a guy wrote in and literally asked this question. And he goes, he was sincere. He asked, why do men have nipples? Like, what's the purpose? Right? And I start laughing and Sean's laughing and I'm just sitting there going, how awesome are people? He literally, but then Sean goes, but, but, but in all fairness, here's what he was saying was this in his question. He said, if God created everything perfect, in Genesis chapter 1, right, in Genesis chapter 2, and it wasn't until sin got involved, then why did he create nipples on men? And yeah, I'm going to say that word a couple times in church this weekend. It's a body part. Come on, people. And, and, and I started thinking about it, and I'm like, man, that's, that's hilarious. I can't believe you asked that. And then I slowly turned my head out to just look out in the eastern plains of Colorado, and I got real quiet, and I was literally like, wait a minute, God. Why do men have nipples? And I started replaying 18 years of my faith and I started questioning things, right? Because I've sat here so many times and I've looked at you guys and I've passionately said, God does nothing arbitrarily, right? And I have believed it with every fiber of my being. And for the first time, I'm going, these seem a little arbitrary. <laughs> my, I have a six-month-old and he gets fed and I can't help him with that. Like, why did we have these? These feel a little bit like you wasted some creative power on something that are really useless, right? Like, I need answers, God. I'm going atheist fast. Talk to me. <laughs> so we're in this blind faith series, right? And I'm starting to lose my faith before he even starts it because some guy writes in some question that now I'm thinking, okay, I got I to Google this. I got to figure this out. Pastoral statement. Don't Google, why do men have nipples? <laughs> Slippery slope. Don't. Don't do it. So I finally looked over at Sean after five minutes of total reflection on 18 years of what I thought was strong faith. And I said, so what week are you going to do the nipple talk, right? He goes, ha, ha, ha. And I go, ha, ha, ha. Seriously, Sean, what week are you doing the nipple? I, I need to know. Like, this is bothering me. I don't have an answer for this, right? But then here's the cool thing. Parallel to that experience, I decided that over the Christmas break and this extended preaching break that I had, that I was going to study a particular book. And I chose an Old Testament book. I chose the book of Joshua. And the cool thing about Joshua, thank goodness, is that it is a book about radical faith, right? And so as I'm having my, question, uh, my faith questioned because of Nipplegate, at the same time, I'm starting to have my uh, faith strengthened because I'm reading this book that just personifies radical faith. And I thought, you know what? In this two-week mini-series that we're going to do, we're going we're gonna to spend some time in the book of Joshua because as I begin to read this book, I realized something. This book is about faith. If you've never read it, read it before, you should this month. It's awesome. It's also a book about war. It's a book about conquest, and it's a book 
about this next word that I'm going to say, and I promise you I am not trying to blow pastoral smoke at you right now. I believe this with all of my heart. As I have prayed and I have sought God through my study in the book of Joshua, I feel like God dropped something so strongly in my heart to say to us for the next two weeks, and this is the theme of everything. This is the word we're going to camp on, and the word is this. It's victory. It's victory. And I know that can sound cliched. Oh, yeah, it's a new year, and the pastor's going to say this is the year of victory, and of course God wants victory for all of us, right? But I just felt like God saying this year in 2016, at the top of the list of adjectives that I want people in Red Rocks Church to use when they describe their year, I want victory to be at the top. I want it to be one of the most frequently used words in the language around Red Rocks Church. But there's some things that victory in the kingdom of God entail, and I think we get some timeless and universal principles in the book. Of Joshua. So let's go there in your Bibles. I'm going to start with Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read nine verses this weekend. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give them. To the Israelites. Now I have to stop there and we need to go to the classroom for just a minute. Now, if you're new to this Bible thing, there's kind of a 101 lesson that you need to know when you're reading the Old Testament, especially if you're like me, you're going to start reading this month, the book of Joshua. And the lesson is this, in everything that happens in the Old Testament, the one thing you need to look for most, whether you're reading a book of history in the Old Testament whether you're reading one of the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, whether you're reading Proverbs, whether you're reading Psalms, any of the Old Testament, when you're reading that, you need to look for Jesus in it. Because this whole book, front to back, from Genesis to Revelations, is ultimately telling us a story about the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, right? And if you start to read the Old Testament through those lenses, you will be amazed at how much foreshadowing of Jesus you see. In fact, all the great men and women of God in the Bible, I call them the five-star generals of the Word of God in the Old Testament, do you know what God is using their story to do? He's using their story to foreshadow a part of the nature and character of Jesus Christ. When you read about Esther, you're reading about part of the nature of the future Messiah, Jesus Christ. When you're reading about Joshua, you're reading about part of the nature and character of Jesus Christ. Moses, Abraham, Ruth, David. Anytime you're reading historical stories and accounts with them involved in leadership, God is using them as a foreshadower, the New Testament tells us, and as a type of Jesus Christ, right? So what I want us to see in this relationship we just read about between Moses and then Joshua is, okay, what part of Jesus are we seeing in those two guys? Because Joshua is Moses' protege. They're working together in history, right? And here's what I want you to understand about Moses. I'll just do a cliff notes for us. Moses' main attribute to the character of Christ that we learn in his leadership over Israel is this, Christ the deliverer, Christ the forgiver. Christ, the one who pardons us freely. That's what Moses' leadership and his interaction, right? Because he's the one that God uses to deliver Egypt out of bondage and slavery from the enemy, Pharaoh, right? And so Moses is a type of Christ showing us an aspect of salvation. The first and the most fundamental act of salvation is that God pardons and he delivers. He takes you out of the grip and out of the hand of the enemy, right? And that's what he uses in the story and the history of Moses and the nation of Israel, And there's nothing that they can do to earn or deserve being pardoned. 
And the same is hold true in the new covenant, right? We get that language all throughout the New Testament. Let, let, me, let me explain it to you this way. When, when God is pardoning Israel and he's delivering them out of the hand of Egypt, did they, did they have anything to do with the 10 plagues that God used to thwart their enemy Pharaoh? They had nothing to do with that. That was a supernatural occurrence, right? And here's why. Because your salvation is nothing less than a supernatural miracle of God. You don't find God. Listen to me. God finds you, Red Rocks Church. It's a miracle to be born again, to cross over from death to life, to literally be made a new creation in Christ. That is a miracle. And so he's using the nation of Israel and Moses to show that salvation is miraculous. And so God says, guess what? By the time you're on the other side of the, of the, of the Jordan, you're not going to be able to take credit for anything. I'm going to show myself powerful and strong on your behalf. I'm going to do miracles to show you that salvation is not by works or religion. Salvation is by grace and faith alone. And that's what he uses Moses. And so Moses delivers them. They have nothing to do with the plagues that would, that would thwart the enemy and cause Pharaoh to say, get out of here. They had nothing to do with God breaking the laws of science and parting the Red Sea. They just walked through it, right? They had nothing to do with the manna that came down from heaven in the wilderness when they were now a sovereign nation and needed some sustenance. They had nothing to do with the miracle when God told Moses to take his stick and to crack it upon the rock, and now all of a sudden all this living water is flowing out that hydrates over a million people. They had nothing to do with that. They could take no credit for their salvation experience, right? But listen to me. There are two sides to the coin of salvation and two sides to the coin of grace. And we have to teach, if we're a biblical-based church, we have to teach both sides of the coins of salvation. And here's where Joshua comes in. Where Joshua comes in is where God's saying, okay, I've saved you, I've delivered you, you are out of the bondage of Egyptian slavery, right? But then Joshua's story is, but I want the people, I want the people to know so they're ready for Jesus someday, that I don't just save my people out of something, I save my people to something. And that is equally as important to God as him saving us out of the hand of the enemy, that he saves us to something. In this case, it's called the promised land, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. And he says, okay, Moses is dead, Joshua. And now it's your job not to save them from something. It's already happened. Now what I want you to do is show them what it means to be saved to something, to a purpose, to something better that I originally intended for you before sin got involved, right? Right? And so while Moses is a picture of salvation in the sense of pardon and forgiveness, and we can't earn it, and we can't deserve it, and we can't work for it, Joshua is the picture of the second side of salvation, which is now God graciously is inviting us to participate in the salvation experience. God's asking Israel to participate in going and taking what is rightfully theirs that God intended them to have before sin ever entered the world. So Joshua is showing us the character of Christ as a conqueror and as a victorious one and what he has in store for us. See, here's what I want you to understand about grace and salvation because they're interchangeably because we're saved by what? Grace through faith, right? Listen to me. Grace isn't just a forgiver. Grace is an empowerer. And my generation of preachers has been awesome at reminding the church that grace is a forgiver and it is justification by grace through faith and it is not by works lest any man should boast. My generation of pastors has Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 memorized. The problem with my generations of pastors though is there's a verse 10. And let's read it to, to, to make my point. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and 10. For it is by what? Grace you've been saved. Moses showed us that in Israel. 
through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is an absolute Red Sea parting gift from God, right? He says emphatically, not by works, can't earn it, can't deserve it, so that nobody can boast. Paul is saying cockiness in the kingdom of God is ludicrous. When you really understand the mercy and the grace that he's shown you, the last thing we should be known for is cockiness or arrogance, right? Because we have been saved by nothing more than the mercy of God. A lot of pastors, again, in my generation, we're great at teaching this side of salvation and this side of grace and making sure that we referee uh, the human hearts by making sure nobody's thinking that it's about them, right? The problem is there's a second aspect to grace. Grace doesn't just forgive. Grace empowers, right? So Paul goes on to say in verse 10, now you are God's handiwork, listen to this, created in Christ Jesus. In other words, now that you've been saved, anywhere in the New Testament where you see the term in Christ Jesus, that was a a New Testament Greek way of saying saved, born again. And Paul's saying you were created what? In Christ Jesus, here it is, to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. So in the same breath, Paul says this about grace and about salvation. He says, listen, you're saved by nothing more than a gift. But there after that, that gift should fuel you to participate in your salvation. And as soon as you know that you had nothing to do with your deliverance and your salvation, now I want you to reflect on that so much that it actually fuels your participation. You were saved Not by works, but listen to me, Red Rocks Church, you were saved for works. And it's so important that we understand that because what happens is, uh, and, and again, I'm just taking responsibility for my generations of American preachers. And it's not that way across the board, but I've just felt in the last couple years God dealing with my heart so much on this message of grace and saying, Chad, don't just stop at pardon. Don't just stop at the forgiving nature of grace. It's an empower. It's fuel to the human soul to live the purpose that I've called people to not only walk out but to participate in. Don't shortchange grace. Don't shortchange salvation. There's two sides to the coin, right? And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us that in verse 10. We're not saved by works, but we are clearly saved for works. Now, here's what's crazy in between the life of Joshua and Moses. After Moses and Israel are safe, they're on the other side of the sea that God parted and then closed it up on their enemies. They're in the wilderness for a little bit. They're in kind of a vulnerable time. And those of you who have been uh, saved for a long time and you've been a Christ follower for a long time, you remember that vulnerable season when you first got saved, right? Like, how's this going to play out? How's this going to go? This is new. That's how they felt as a nation. They were sovereign for the first time. And we know geographically that from Goshen, where they left in Egypt, to the beginning of the Jordan River, where they would eventually take over Canaan, the promised land, it's an 11-day walk. 200-some miles can be done in 11 days. 14 if there's some problems, they say. At most, 14-day journey. Do you know how long Israel stayed in between Goshen and where God wanted them to be? 40 years on an 11-day walk, 40 years. And as I thought about that and as I reflect on that, the thing that that God put on my heart for this week was to remind us, listen, you can be completely pardoned and saved because it is not of you. It is a gift from God, and you can still be stuck your whole life. And I can't think of too many things that must break the heart of our Father God than when one of his sons or one of his daughters is saved 
redeemed, made pure by the blood of Christ, and they live their lives practically stuck the whole time down here. It's like God saying, no, 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 in 2016, I don't want anyone in Red Rocks Church that would say they're saved, saved, but they're stuck. God wants victory for you. And God has given you, the Bible says, everything you need to, to have victory in this lifetime. I don't want anybody to say, hey, I'm saved. I'm, I'm on my way to heaven. God's grace is that good. I know that I've been forgiven of my sins. I know that I put my faith in the grace of Jesus Christ, but I'm still going to live in an endless cycle of relational dysfunction and chaos. Going from one relationship to the next, failure after failure after failure. God says, no, I don't want that. I want victory in your relationships. Marriages, friendships, everything in between. Some people can be stuck financially their whole lives and be, be, be as saved as the rest of us, as any of us. But yet live in a, in a perpetual state of financial crisis and instability. And God's going, I don't want you to live that way. I have victory for you, even on this side of earth, even though it's not perfect yet. Listen to me, the goal is victory. That should be your only mindset. That should be the only thing you're, you're thinking about. People can be saved and on their way to heaven and spend their whole life gripped by abuse and addiction and insecurity that controls the state of their thinking in their heart. God's going, I don't want anybody in, in Red Rocks Church in 2016 saved but stuck. And this is what Israel did. Why? To show us that this is what we have in the human heart. None of us are exempt when we get saved from being stuck. So God's going, I'm going to use this story of Joshua to show you principles of victory. And so let's continue reading in Joshua verse 3. It says, Joshua, I will give you every place where you set your foot. Isn't that an awesome promise? Every place you set your foot, Joshua, it's yours. He says, as I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the West. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. He says, as I was with Moses, what an awesome promise. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. He says this, I love this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can we agree from that promise that God gives to Joshua that Joshua has everything that he needs for victory? Can we agree? Now, I want to talk about the participatory role in our salvation and in victory. Because can we agree that if you continue to read Joshua, they still had to go to war against the enemies? They still had to practically pick up swords and go and do what God told them to do? They still had to sweat and bleed on the battlefield to rightfully take what God said was theirs based on covenant and promise, right? And can I tell you that none of that has changed in the new covenant because we're under grace now? because we've been pardoned freely by grace, thank you, Jesus. But can I tell you that grace doesn't just pardon, I'm gonna say it again, grace empowers us to, to, to participate in this beautiful experience of victory in this lifetime. Don't take my word for it, listen to what the new covenant says. Listen to what our first pastor ever, the pastor Peter, listen to what he says in 1 Peter 1, three through nine. He says, God's divine power has given us everything that we need. Doesn't that sound like Joshua language we just read? Why? Because Joshua is a foreshadowing, a type of what we would have in Christ. He's using the same language. He just told Joshua, everywhere you put your foot, it's yours. As I promised Moses, he just says the same thing to us. The only difference is where warfare is different now. He says, God's given you everything you need for victory, for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us a very great and precious promises so that through them you may, you ready for this word? 
participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Peter goes on to write this to us, the church. He says, for this reason, make every effort. Now, some of you who just say, I'm a grace person, grace and grace alone, you're not going to like this language unless you understand that grace isn't just a forgiver, it's an empower. Listen to what grace does. He says, for this very reason, make every what? <gasps> effort works with grace? Just reading it. Make every effort, and here's another word that sounds like it could go against the grace message, add. What? Like I'm, uh, there's, some, there's some burden on me? Like there's, there, you've entrusted me with some, some, some participation in my salvation? And in, absolutely. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. This is how we fight now in the kingdom of God. We don't fight the way Joshua and the nation of Israel did. When they fought, it was a national issue. It was a geographical issue. It was human to human. Jesus has finished all the work. Jesus on the cross has finished all of the warfare. Jesus has shed the last drop of blood that he ever hoped would be shed on planet earth, at least from his people, right? That's what the cross did. Now we don't fight the way the world fights. Now we fight by saying, add to your faith goodness. We fight with goodness. We fight with knowledge. We fight with knowledge. Add knowledge. Uh, add to your knowledge self-control into self-control, perseverance into perseverance, kindness. You want to talk about an awesome sword in the hand of God is when us as people are the kindest people on planet earth. And it says, add to brotherly kindness, love. It says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive, a.k.a. they will keep you from being unstuck. Because you could be saved, right, Red Ox? And still be stuck. And, and Peter's saying, no, 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 you don't have to be stuck. God's given you everything for life and godliness. God has given you everything to show that you don't have to be stuck in this lifetime. But you have a responsibility to participate and to make every effort and to add one thing to the next thing in the kingdom of God. These will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and he says, but whoever does not have these things are nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. See, the victory in this life is the same thing for you as it is for me. Except we don't fight the way they did back then. Again, because we're Jesus people. The cross finished the work. This is good news. We get to be people of peace now, right? We don't fight people on other nations in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't fight people because they have a different belief system anymore in the name of Jesus Christ or because they come from a different background or because they come from a different nation. We're, we're peacemakers now, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for you will be the sons and the daughters of God, right? Blessed are those who sow in peace for they will reap a harvest of righteousness. But can I tell you, we don't fight geographically and nationally and physically anymore, but the fight that you or I are in as new covenant believers is as equally real and as equally strong and powerful as the fight they did back then. It's just now a spiritual battle, right? Paul says in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Those days are gone. Jesus finished that on the cross. Now we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers in this dark world, right? He says, so, so, so take your stand. 
He says, put on the full armor of God. And after you've done everything to stand, he says, we stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around our waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And he says, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then I know what you guys are thinking. Those are all like defensive. Can we get like a weapon? And he, yeah, he goes, take up the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. This is what we fight with now as people of peace. This is what we use to get victory now. Joshua and them used spears and swords and catapults of fire and probably painted their bodies and faces blue and screamed and yelled and spit a bunch like men do. And God says, no, 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 not under the new covenant. Now you want to know how you wield a sword? You memorize this thing. You eat this thing like it's food every day. You take this with you to work. You take this with you to home. You read it when you wake up. Read it when you go to bed. This is where victory lies in your Christian faith. This is where getting unstuck lies. We renew our minds back to the truth of Jesus Christ. And over time, we start to increase in things like goodness and brotherly kindness and perseverance and self self-control. This thing just has this divine way of getting God's heart and God's desire in us so we live it out. See, victory in the kingdom of God now isn't making sure that everything in the external world is perfect. You're going to have times of difficulty. You're going to have times of persecution. You're going to have times where externally all hell's breaking loose out, out, outwardly. And God says in the midst of that, you can still live in the perpetual land of milk and honey, not because of what's happening out here in the real world, but because of what's happening in your heart. And if you really want to be a person of victory in 2016, if you really want to say, not only am I saved, but I'm not stuck anymore. God says the most integral thing you will do to obtain victory and conquest is this thing right here. Don't just take my word for it. Let's go back to Joshua. Listen to what God says next. He says, Joshua, be strong and courageous because you'll lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. He says, be strong and very courageous, right? A sentence later, he's repeating it. But now he's adding, be very, because he knows human nature. He says, be strong and very courageous. And then ready, ready for this? He says, be careful. These are the two beatitudes of victory is what I call them. Be strong and courageous is the first beatitude. The second one is be careful. Be careful to do what, Chad? It says, be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Why? You ready for this language? You ready to hear God's heart for you? So that you may be successful wherever you go. Goes on to say, keep this book of law, this thing right here, always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be, here it is again, careful. Remember, because the, the Beatitudes of victory. Be courageous and you be careful. It says be careful to do everything written in it. Here it is again. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? He's like, one more time, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I think to myself, if God earlier just told Joshua that every place he puts his foot, they're going to win, I don't know if I would be thinking about being careful or even courageous. I'd just be like, if God said it, it's going to happen. I might even be a little cocky. Why does God say, I'm giving you everything? It's a covenant promise. It's a done deal. And then still feels the need to say, but, but be courageous and be careful 
And here's why. Because God's strategies for victory were going to look really stupid on paper to Joshua once he started getting God's commands. Do you know the first war that Joshua fought in bands at all campuses? You guys can come up. Do you know the first war Joshua fought? It was a war against this fortified city called Jericho. It was arguably the toughest battle that they would have right off the bat, first battle. And do you know what God's command is? We're going to see why he says be courageous and be careful to do everything I tell you to do. Because God's, here, here's God's game plan and strategy for victory. Okay, here, Joshua, you ready to go? And he's like, you know, again, Mel Gibson up, painted blue. He's on his horse. He's ready to give the speech. He's got the spear. He's got the sword. You know, he's got everything going, and he's just fired up because he's a man, right? He loves that stuff. He's going to lead him to victory. God says, Joshua, you, you, you ready to know what we're going to do at Jericho? And Joshua's like, yeah, tell me, God. He's like, I, I want you to put the musicians on the front line. What? <laughs> the artists? No, look those guys that just sit around and write music all day and they're kind of in their own little unorganized world and they're just happy go, right? You, you're trusting them with the front lines against the most fortified city in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Put them on the front lines and then you want to know what I want you to do next? All right, here we go. Talk to me about my spear. Talk to me about my sword. Here, here's what I want you to do next. I want you to march around the city. Seriously? Like just walk. Mm-hmm. You ready to know what next? Yeah, here we go. Talk to me. We're going to catapult some fire, catapult some guys over there. It's like human bombs, or what are we going to do, God? At the end of the walk, I want you to scream. Ooh, right? So let me get this straight, God. You, you want to put the musicians on the front lines with their instruments, because those are intimidating. <laughs> We're coming for you. <laughs> right? Ooh. You want me to do that? Then you want us to take a, a victory lap before anything's happened, and then you want us to scream at them. God's like, yeah. And here's why, Red Rock Church. Because God is very uninterested in your talents, your gifts, your schemes, your strategies, your tenure, your five-year plan. You know what he's interested in? Radical obedience. Because nothing's more important than the glory of God. You will be in no more victorious spot in life than when the chief goal of your heart and mind is to bring glory to God through your life. And God will set his system up in a way that is so counterintuitive and so otherworldly that when he gives you commands in his word, not just Old Testament, but New Testament, you're going to look at some of them and go, what? You want me to be a leader? Of this? You want me to, to obey like, like that? And God's like, yeah. And he looks at all of us and he says this, listen, that there's two things I need from you if you really want 2016 to be a year of victory. If, if you're stuck right now and you want to be unstuck, there's going to be two things you have to do. You have to be courageous and you have to be careful to make this the single most important and holy thing that you have in your possession, the word of God. Because God's saying, you know what you really need courage for? You don't need courage for war, Joshua. You need courage to trust that when I say shout, shout, and it's going to work. You know what the most courageous thing you'll do in 2016, whether you're a man, a woman, a father, a mother, a wife, a friend, a brother, a sister, the most courageous thing you will do is look at some of the countercultural, backwards commands of God and say, I'm going to trust and I'm going to follow these and I'm going to ask God to give me a heart of radical obedience and I'm going to put victory in his hands and obedience in mine. This is the sweet participation and relationship we have in our salvation. It's our sweet act of worship, right? Romans 12, in view of God's mercy. Never forget what you've been saved from and that it's a free gift. 
the one side of the coin, but then the second thing is, now that you know the mercy you've been given, do what? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Some of you in here say, you know, courage isn't a problem for you. But if you're being honest, you say, you know what? Being careful with this thing has been a problem. Some of you at any of our campuses, you've been playing fast and loose with God's written word and his holy commands. You've talked yourself into the fact that you're the exception to the rule of what God calls out in you. And I'm lovingly telling you as a pastor, if you really want to walk in victory and you don't want to be stuck relationally, financially, socially, and any other aspect of life, listen to me. You're going to have to confront the commands of God, even the inconvenient ones, even the ones that don't make sense on paper. Some of you, it, it's, it, courage is, is not a problem, but being careful with this thing is. Be careful with God's commands, with his word. And some of you are the opposite. You know, you know what? You have this, just this beautiful heart of obedience, and you, you can even be a little meticulous with morality. And there's just this natural, more natural bent to say, I'm not, I don't obey. I don't feel comfortable when I'm not obeying God. But, but courage is an issue for you. You're fairly meticulous with your morality, but you, you still miss out on a lot of victory and opportunities because you, you live in fear. Maybe that's you, but, but, but what God's saying is these two have to work together. You have to be courageous, but you have to be careful. And when those two things come together, look out, victory is in store. You're going to have a changed heart. You're going to have a changed life. Some of you, the message God sends this weekend is be courageous. Some of you, the message God sends this weekend is you need to be more careful. But then there's a third group of people, and this is such an important group. Some of you, all of this talk is some degree in vain because you say, I'm not even in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't want to end this without offering you at all of our campuses the opportunity to make Jesus the Lord and the Savior of your life. But I want to tell you what you're enlisting into. Just like you saw Luke in that video at the beginning, enlisting into the U.S. Army, signing up to potentially give his life for democracy, which is pretty cool, right? But when you're enlisting to be a son or a daughter of the king, to give your heart and your life by faith through grace in Jesus Christ, listen to me, you are enlisting to death. I want to shoot you straight. I want to tell you the truth. You are signing up for something, listen to me, that is so worth dying for. It's worth fighting for. It's worth sweating for. It's worth bleeding for. There is nothing better and more noble on the face of the earth than to be a person who's wholly surrendered to Jesus in your life. And some of you got brought here this weekend at any one of your campuses so that you could by faith accept the saving, pardoning work of Jesus Christ. And you heard it earlier. It's a gift. It's free. Your past doesn't matter. The minute you give your life to Jesus, your past goes from an indictment to a teacher. Isn't that good news? The minute you give your life to Jesus, you are a son and you are a daughter. The Bible says that you are perfectly righteous and that you are perfectly holy. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Don't miss out on that. This is the first and the foremost step to victory in your life because it's eternal victory. You don't just start the, you just don't start the process of having a great life now. You get heaven forever. On your best day of victory in this life, it's going to be difficult. But we know such good news, which is someday you're going to breathe your last. And when you do, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and nobody gets to him except through Jesus Christ. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed at every campus, I just want to ask the question and I want to ask you to respond boldly. If you're at any of our campuses, you say, I want to accept the saving free work of Jesus Christ. I want that gift. Can't work for it, can't earn it, don't deserve it. It is a gift of grace through your faith. If you want that, would you by faith raise your hand right now? Would you let us know? We want to pray for you. We want to celebrate keep them up at all campuses. Thank you. We want to pray for you and celebrate. Thank you. Now, Jesus, I just pray for every single person that raised their hand as an act of faith to say, I want to receive you, Jesus. I pray now that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, your sweet, sweet spirit. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make this experience so real to them. Let them understand that what they've done is truth and it's life. Jesus, fill them to overflowing with you and your presence. God, I pray for everybody else that says, I need to work on courage or I need to work on being more careful with God's holy word. I pray that you would help us. I pray even during this time of worship at all of our campuses that you would do something so convicting and so beautifully sweet in the hearts of all this. I pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. At all of our campuses, would you guys stand? We're gonna worship.